Simon Seabag Montefiore, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on my podcast. I've interviewed you on stage twice at the magnificent and beautiful Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford, but I don't think I've ever interviewed you for a podcast or for something recorded. So this is really exciting for me. And the reason I want to do it, well, I wanted to do it before our latest meeting on stage, but I've found you such a compelling person to talk to. And when we're in front of an audience, you seem to have the audience in the cup of your hand because you've got this great charisma. And I think that charisma filters through to the way that you write as well. So it's a Thank pleasure you. to have you. And I, it's, I've great been... to be, it's great to be reunited. It's very good to be reunited, even remotely. So this is yeah. 20 questions and there's no mucking around. We're going to get started. And okay. the, my first question revolves around the world of family history, because this is your remarkable new book, newish book. It's about 1,200 pages, and it doesn't put its punches in its attempts to give us some sort of version of our own history as human beings. And you do it through the lens of the family. And I'm curious to know why you chose that lens. I just wanted to do something that hadn't been done before. And what I wanted to do was to ca capture um, world history in one narrative from, from the very beginning to now but in such a way that, that captured the intimacy of biography with the span of world history. In, in so many world histories that the people are left out and it's just a list of um, identities and commodities and trade routes and, and, and I missed the sort of people in it. And so I wanted to combine the two. And I think that the great thing about um, using family to tell world history is that not only does it have that intimacy, but it also enables you to capture the important things in, in, in the new history writing of today, um, the, the history of women who are obviously pretty central to family life. And, and also um, it applies brilliantly to telling non-European history. And this book is filled with the families of Asia, of South Asia, of Africa, of, of, of the Americas, as well as the usual suspects in Europe. So there are a lot of very bad characters in this book, inevitably. And you've got form here because you wrote a book called Monsters, didn't you? And this was about the most evil men and women in history. So you're familiar with and comfortable, if that's the right word, with chronicling the deeds of very bad people. But there's much more than that, isn't there, in the book? There's love and there's human relationships, at, maybe not always at their best, but the, the, the nuance of human relationships. You, this, you're trying to understand partly, I think, what it is to be a human being, what it is that makes us tick. And of course, bad stuff is part of that, but there's good as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff in the book because as we're seeing today in Ukraine, for example, you know, when wars and pandemics um, happen, when violence happens, um, that also applies to you know, natural disasters. But these things are all super accelerants, super propellants of history, and it, it, it speed things up and inflame history and test systems and bring down accepted um, hierarchies. And so violence is kind of important to history for obvious reasons. And so a world history has a lot of violence in it. And, and you know, this one goes right up to the war in Ukraine. It ends on the day of the, of the Ukrainian invasion by Putin. But it's also, as you said, um, Matthew, you know, a great celebration of, of really of humanity, of love, of poetry. Um, there's, there's all, the, all the great painters are in here, all the great, all the great fiction writers, my favourite fiction writers. Of course, you know, the great fun thing about this sort of writing this sort of book is like choosing, choosing who goes in and, um, and choosing who you leave out. And some of those decisions are sort of very difficult. Um, some, some people you can't leave out. I mean, I, I, I know I, I woke up in the middle of the night while writing this and realized I'd left Jesus Christ out at one point. 
Um, and, and, you know, it's just one of those terrible moments that happen when you're writing such an insane book. But you're right. I, I hope that all of all of human drama is in here. Do you think that the way we view violence depends at least in part on how proximate we are to it in terms of time? So if we look at what's happening in Ukraine, we're horrified by it. But if you're discussing some gruesome and ghastly act that happened centuries ago, perhaps we have a, a, a different approach. That's so true. Maybe that allows this sort of slight injection of wit or humour while talking about something that if it was contemporaneous, we wouldn't dream of doing. Well, there's different sides to that. Very good question. I mean, one is that, you know, in this book, I, I do talk about the Ukraine war, and, and you know, which started in 2014. But I also talk about how we've completely ignored um, the massive civil wars in in Ethiopia and the great African war, the great Congan war, in which over, you know, over a million people have died, several million people have died. And equally, the Iran-Iraq war, in which a million people died in trench warfare. And these are events, you know, in, our, in my lifetime, in your lifetime, that, you know, frankly, have been completely neglected and never bothered, never bothered to be. Um, no one's really bothered to master these extraordinary events. And, the, you know, the great Congan war, in, in Central Africa is in some ways still going on and no one pays it the least attention. So it's not just about what's in proximity to us in time, but it's also in proximity, you know, geographically and, in t and you know, and you can analyze those, those African wars and why they're neglected, you know, um, yourself. But the, 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 it's interesting that the war in Ethiopia with Tigray and Eritrea, with all sorts of people in, intervening, scarcely covered um, scarcely covered in the Western newspapers, um, while the Ukrainian war we're absolutely obsessed with. So there's there's an answer to your question. And then, of course, you know, with time, um, you know, yes, the further th the further time is, the further wars are away and tragedies are away, the more likely one can write about them for sure. And and of course, there's also the changing um, standards of public life and, and public morality. I mean, as Voltaire said, you know, we you know. Um, you know, we praise murderers, providing they did so, um, providing they murdered a lot of people in battle with, with, with blaring trumpets. Um, you know, so we kind of traditionally, um, we worship people like Alexander the Great or, or you know, Napoleon. Um, and right up until World War One, there was a cult of the warlord, the, the, the military commander. Some would say until World War, until World War II, I and mean, Hitler and Stalin were both, you know, revered as kind of as military supremos um, in incredibly bloody and bungled wars. So, so it's only recently that we even have that analysis at all. You mentioned Ukraine by contrast to the horrors of what's happened in Central Africa. Another example of somewhere where we really seem to care about what's going on is the Middle East, of course, Israel and Palestine, the occupied territories. You've actually written a book, Jerusalem, the biography. So this is somewhere along with Russia that you know very well. How yeah. did you decide the extent of detail to weave into the world of family history when talking about areas of history that you know, as I say, particularly well? That, that was a great, it was a very liberate, that's a very liberating um, thing because I knew Russia, I knew Stalinist Russia, I knew, you know, Romanov Russia very well. I didn't have, but I felt I didn't have to put any of those things in unless I needed them in the world history. So it actually, the world, the, the history of the world um, does have a lot of Middle East, a lot of Jerusalem, and a lot of, um, you know, it has Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and Stalin and all those people, but it, and Gorbachev, 
um, and of course Putin. But it doesn't it doesn't have anything that I don't need. I have those. I have that covered in those books. But you know, Jerusalem, the, the biography, which is my best selling book, really, it sold a million copies in China. Weirdly, uh, uh, but you know, the interesting thing about that is it that that is the sort of um, companion volume to to the world of a uh, family history. It was it's a sort of world history, certainly a history of the whole Middle East through Jerusalem, and. Um, I'd always wanted to write that book since I was a child visiting Jerusalem and my family had a connection with it also. And, um, and I, I really, that was a really challenging book to write, a very hard book to write because there was so much, so much complexity and so much prejudice in, or, or, or from all directions about what, what history should be told. And one of the reasons I wanted to write it was because, you know, the only way that anyone's going to ever make peace in Jerusalem, peace in the Middle East, in the Israel-Palestine conflict, is if one one way is you know um, two states, but the other way is, and that is not even possible without the other way, which is a recognition of the narratives of the other, and a recognition of the history of the other, and so this history I really worked as hard as I could to make it um, neutral and you know to have both stories, both communities contributed to it a lot, and you know. And that is a very hard thing to do in Jerusalem, of course. In the world, the range, as one might hope and expect, is enormous. So you talk to us about Omar, about Mehmed, about Salim, about Antiochus, if that's if I pronounce Antiochus yeah, cor- yeah, cor- correctly, yeah. about what was going on with Carthage, about, as you say, Alexander the Great, about the Nehru's more recently, about Barbarossa, about great artists such as Michelangelo when he met. Who was he meeting, remind me, in the book? Raphael, he yeah. met all the Pope or Pope Julius II, or he met all sorts of people. I mean, Michelangelo is such a fascinating character. One thing I've added, Matthew, which, which is, you know, there's been very, just since I've published the book, I've, been, I've just been putting in the sort of changes and corrections for the paperback of the world. And I've put in various things I couldn't resist adding, that without adding any pages, I might add, because there's a few, there's ways you can add stuff without adding any pages. But one of the things that's very interesting that's come up since is, that Leonardo da Vinci may have been the son of an enslaved Jewish woman, which is pretty interesting for all sorts of, I mean, one, it's interesting because, you know, he, Michelangelo, I mean, sorry, that, that this is Leonardo da Vinci, but one, it's interesting because Leonardo da Vinci was a classic Italian Renaissance figure, may have been half Jewish. Secondly, you know, he may have been the son of an enslaved you know, woman who'd, who had been, in effect, a sex slave and who had been um, enslaved and kidnapped as a child from Eastern Europe, from the, from the Caucasus. Um, she was probably Circassian, uh, which is a, from the North Caucasus. And three, it just gives you a sort of another, another fascinating lens into slavery in the Middle Age, in, in, in the Renaissance period, when there was slavery, there was, sla- there was African slavery, but there was also Eastern Mediterranean and Black Sea slavery. And, you know, people like the Medicis had, they had slaves who were both, they had, Black slaves, and they also had Russian and Eastern European, you know, Eastern European Black Sea slaves in their households, which is pretty fascinating. So I've put that in about Da Vinci because I think that's pretty, pretty, pretty revealing. Funnily enough, my next question it was going to be writing on, on such a broad canvas with the names I've pulled out there, just some of the very, very many. Was there a particular personality or a particular part of what you were, what you're chronicling that surprised you or that you really felt you were learning along with us, the reader of your history? 
there are lots of those sort of there are lots of those sort of personalities. You know, one of the things I did in the book was was to treat. You know, I, I wrote about the Jeff, Thomas Jefferson's relationship um, and ownership of Sally Hemming, um, with whom he had children, and that was a fascinating revelation because really looking at them and treating them treating them in a similar way. Um, Sally Hemming had always been sort of neglected until recently um, by history. Thomas Jefferson, the most you know, regarded as the the very definition of civilized knowledge um, for a long time. Um, really revealed what life was like in these plantations in Virginia and in the American, you know, the American colonies and how they how it worked. And so that was a that was a revelation, very fascinating um, to, to research that. But you know, I, one of the great things about this was that you know I got to I got to study all these different, you know, the Ottomans, um, the Mamelukes. Um, I got to study pirates. Uh, I got to study many fascinating civilizations. But I think you know, one of the great joys of it was just reading. I mean, one of the things I did was read virtually the whole of Pepys, um, Samuel Pepys's diary. And, you know, it was a great joy. I mean, of course, he was a very flawed character by modern standards, um, you know, probably a bit of a sex pest, um, you know, uh, but he was also just a genius, probably the, one of the greatest descriptive you know, writers of reportage ever in, in, in human history. A person of irrepressible joie de vivre, and and his account of his account of sort of um, restoration Britain just gripping, and I couldn't put it down, and it was one of the great joys reading it. You hear time and again, don't you, that history repeats itself, and I don't think you think that's necessarily right. But did you find clues in the past as to how the the present is evolving into the future? Did you see foreshadowing? I mean, I'm thinking, for example, I now can't remember whether it was the 16th century, but people from China were on the east coast visiting the east coast of Africa, getting involved perhaps in in some way, and now and now, of course, you see a big Chinese footprint, don't you? Yeah. In the continent of on the continent of Africa, so just one example, perhaps. And, and yeah, maybe that's a very got... good example. Yeah, that's a very good example. I mean, the Yongle Emperor, the ta- the, the the Ming Emperor Yongle, sent these massive, um, sent six six I think fleets, massive treasure fleets on these in huge ships, um, with with considerable um military forces with them. Um, on these amazing expeditions. I mean, first of all, just to what is now Indonesia and then Sri Lanka and then Africa and, um, you know, and Arabia. And so that was a really fascinating thing to to, um, to write about and to study. But, and it's all in the book, obviously, as you said, but of course it stands out more because China never did anything like it before or since until now. And so rather than showing how history repeats itself, um, I think it really shows how Chinese power now is really unique. And though China, the People's Republic, presents itself as the successor of um, almost an almost continuous empire, actually, it's not really true. The you know, uh, Chinese empire has vanished, flourished, broke up into periods of massive disorder for centuries and then reformed in a very different way. And the People's Republic of China is the heir to uh, Manchu China, which was the biggest empire. And they they re they they reassembled a lot of it. But the phenomenon of the Belt and Ro- Road um, initiative of um, President Xi, um, their presence all over the world now, but especially in Africa, um, owning and buying up um, you know valuable metals and so on, is really unique. And 
is the first time it happens. And I think it really does show, you know, the opposite, that, that history has all sorts of echoes and there are all sorts of lessons from history. But the problem with them is that they're, 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 very, they're hard to apply because the cases today are, are similar but different. I mean, Putin is a good example of that. You know, he's sort of, he's definitely um, channeling the Romanov Tsars and Stalin, but, it, but it's not quite the same either. If we move from China via very briefly Russia to India, what did you learn from studying the Nehru's? And where do you, how do you think Modi is positioned now as leader of India, Prime Minister well, of India's India? Really, India's really important and fascinating. And it's about, it's about to become, you know, the most populous country on earth. It is brilliantly positioned um, thanks to its sophistication, education, um, uh, traditions of incredible hard work, its internet, its its kind of global nature, um, its geographical position, its mass, its position to be the next great superpower. It's, it's already a nuclear power. I call these powers continental powers, powers that used to be called the non-aligned powers, but which are the sort of new middling powers that are that have independent foreign policies and um, and great ambitions outside, probably outside their continent. But it's about to leap from being a continental power into, into a superpower, one of the world's superpowers. There are lots of things that can go wrong with it, though. I mean, one is if it becomes a, 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 a if it goes from being a majoritarian democracy to being an autocracy, it'll ruin its 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 entrepreneurialism and ingenuity. If it if it persecutes its Muslim minority, ditto, it'll ruin, it'll, you know, um, religious and ethnic strife will destroy. The Indian miracle, as it were, but it is. It, but it's India's to lose, and India is it, India's the country to watch now, along with a few other less kind of obvious countries like Indonesia. But in answer to your question, you know, Modi's promoted himself as the sort of anti-Nehru's, um, you know, a self-made man. Um, the Nehru's, when I mean, the Nehru's dominated India, you know, for sixty years, and show how in, even in a democracy, the world's greatest democracy. A family dynasty, a demo dynasty, can can sort of can sort of personify the nation. But you know, just to go back to the, the next sort of fifty years, I mean, the, the next twenty years, I'd say the next the big ch- another big challenge for India is what's going to happen in Pakistan, because Pakistan, if Pakistan collapses as it looks like it might, as it's possible that it could do now, that would be very hard for India to resist. And though it would be a great triumph for India in some ways that it's that it's long its ancient enemy, Pakistan, would disintegrate. India would probably be drawn into, into the crisis. That would bring in China and, and the United States. And so I think after Taiwan, the Pakistan situation is the most dangerous um, on Earth at the moment. You say that India is the country to watch, along with some other less obvious countries. I mean, is India the country to watch even more so than China? And where on, on its trajectory is America is America now do you think beginning to wane or is it still waxing is it still rising well I mean obviously there's huge disorder in America um, and there's a huge crisis in American democracy but I see that America I think America is going to be going to be um, very resilient and I think that even with the political chaos it's still got it's still got such entrepreneurial energy and ingenuity flexibility the things that China for example doesn't have um, you know, the problem with China is it's it, it's an autocracy that's constantly tightening and strangling it, that those those virtues um, that are necessary for a successful capitalist um, state. 
and even you know even though it's an all it's it's a party autocracy it's it's um you know it's it's trying to keep a free market it's actually being strangled now by party control and so that that will cause that will cause a crisis in governance there while america i actually think we've all said america's you know we're watching the downfall of the american empire and it's america's withdrawn from all sorts of places um like the middle east but actually still it's a i think its economy will continue to flourish and it will remain you know will remain a massive a massively successful country and is india more of a country to watch than china i think india has more potential than china because because india is a democracy and democracies are incredibly flexible and, and and encourage ingenuity and personal and personal ventures, you know, and personal and, and, and they're countries that that foster the imagination, and so India has a massive potential. But there's a lot that can go wrong there too. Where does the United Kingdom, do you think, fit into the future? And I ask you that as a historian, looking through at a historian's lens of how we've got to where we've got to so far, and what that might lead you to anticipating about the future. I'm much less neurotic about Britain than most people are in Britain. And maybe that's the, that's the whole point of world history is that you get a bit of perspective. I'm much less hung up about the, the British Empire. I've never thought it was a perfect, I've never thought it was a perfect crime-free, um, the building of the British Empire was a perfect crime-free uh, act of heroism. Far from it. I've always had a very realistic view of um, the con British conquests and also um, I'm less I'm less Anglo-centric. I think many of the people who are obsessed with British Empire don't know much about, say, the French Empire, which you know, which which was very different and yet very similar. Um, you know, people most people in Britain who are obsessed with Brit the British Empire don't realise that you know they had India, we had India, they we had India, they had Indochina, um, and in Africa they had a larger empire than us geographically. Um, we had more we had more people in our in our territories. But you know, in, in the world, in the world of, of family history, I cover all these empires kind of equally, and I think that much of the sort of self laceration about the British Empire is only possible if you don't realise you don't know much about other empires in other places. And it's not a question of what aboutery; it's just the fact that like they're all happening at the same time, and you know, I just I sort of feel they're all kind of they all all empires start with start with crime, start with violence, start with coercion, often built by um, piratical um, adventurers, then state takes over and um, they, they all contain similar amounts of racism, of exploitation. All of them then um, produce civil services that have a kind of philanthropic program, which is more or less successful and in the end, if they don't continue to, to exert power by coercion, the empires fall apart. And also there are several, you know, there are, there are many different empires. I mean, the British Empire, French Empire, were both cases where they had, you know, the Indochine Empire was different from the West African Empire and so on. The American Empire was different from, from you know, from other aspects of the empire at different times. From, for example, the Middle Eastern mandates in the, in the 20th century. All of them are very different. And you just can't just... You can't just treat them all exactly the same. So where's Britain now? Britain is just going to be a, you know, a rather sophisticated uh, second echelon power. And um, I think I think um, that's a pretty good place to be for us. This may be an impossible question to answer, but talking about perspective, how different 
a book do you think this book would have been had you been writing as an American or as as a South African or as a as an Indian? In other words, how influenced do you think you are as a historian by your own context, by your own education, your the, the country that you that you live in? Well, I think that's a very good question. I mean, we're all totally um, the fruit of our own background, our own identities, where we come from, uh, where we're writing, and more important, when we're writing. I mean, for example, this book is obsessed with with slavery and with writing the history of slavery, which has been neglected. But that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been so interesting to someone writing a history 50, 60 years ago. So that reflects the interests of our own time, and oftentimes the interests of our own time. Are rather useful things to be and interesting things to be writing about and necessary things. Um, you know, the fact that this book is filled with theme, the history of women, you know, again, 60 years ago, I don't think someone writing even in England would have been interested in that so much. But as the sort of when you said about would it would it have been, I mean, America, for, uh, talking about an American historian, for better or for worse, British culture and British history really reflects the, the, the really reflects the obsessions. Of, of American culture, American history. And so I don't think it would be that different in that sense. Um, I think I think most most intellectuals in Britain are almost um, almost slave I would I would say the word slavishly with um with uh, advisedly, but they they copy um, they, they copy American culture. So I think it does reflect American culture. As for India, Africa, uh, Polynesia, all these places, um, all these places that you also mentioned. I mean, I've tried wherever possible not to cover Europe and to cover to cover India, to cover Africa, to cover um, South Asia and East Asia. So I'm hoping that this has a disproportionate amount of non-European material. You've mentioned more than once that your interest in the history of women or the importance of women in history. And the book opens with a woman, someone I'd never heard of before, but I think the first woman that we've ever got record yeah. of. Yeah, and, and of Juana, which, which is like, she's a fascinating character and a perfect person to start the book with, I thought. I just want to ask you about Cleopatra, because yeah. I, I'm curious to know, and this stands, of course, for Alexander the Great, who we've already mentioned, and, and many others too, but how clear a picture do you think we are able, or you as a historian are able to conjure of someone like Cleopatra, who still looms so large in our consciousness. Shakespeare wrote a play at the centre of which she was, or a, a huge part of it, Antony and Cleopatra. She's a big figure in, in our imaginations. How closely do you think, as a historian, you can capture her when she was alive so long ago? We can't, and we have to have a great, great amount of humility. Historians need to have a large amount of humility about how they cover anybody. I mean, we know, we know very little about people even in our own lives. So people a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, um, you know, we've really got to have a realistic view of how little we know. We don't know what she looked like. And, um, you know, we only know what Octavian Augustus and his people wrote about her and his historians wrote about her. One thing is certain about Victoria, I mean, about Cleopatra. Victoria is another woman in the book. But, another, you know, one thing certain about it is like, you know, no character in history has so much nonsense written about them, so much, so often. And of course, that's because she's become a signal personality, what I call a signal personality, in the sense that she sort of, she signals all, she, sig she signals whatever anyone wants to find in her and comes to, becomes a symbol of that. Um, you know, for example, 
I mean, I think Cleopatra is one of those kind of feminist icons, a feminist obsessions. And yet her career um, couldn't have been less feminist. Uh, it was, you know, she she based her she based her rise and her her survival on her relationship, um, her connections to two the two most powerful men in the world, the two Roman um, two Roman potentates, um, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, and that ultimately completely failed and led to the ruin of Cleopatra and and her kingdom and the loss of the kingdom to the family. So, you know, it's, and she she you know she was absolutely murderous character. Um, she murdered her. She murdered her own siblings. Um, you know, it's it's just extraordinary that I that I, I think that no one who knows about it anything about it could really regard her as a great as a great um, you know banner waver for feminism. Give us just a, a, a brief insight into your craft as a historian. So I, I think you wrote this book, or at least the majority of it, during the pandemic. And so in, in a sense, you, you had a bit more time than you otherwise might have had on your on your hands, I can imagine. But how on earth do you go about writing a history of the world? How do you cover enough ground? There's a, there's a famous saying, ars in calare artem, the skill is in disguising the skill. Well, your, your skill is to reduce the history of the world to 1,200 pages. 1,200 pages is still an enormous amount. The history of the world is an almost infinitely large thing. How do you begin to go about doing the groundwork that allows you then to synthesise it into 1,200 pages? Well, it's all just massive amount of reading and just trying to master subjects and just come to what the essence of them are. And of course, you know, the whole fun of this was to be as expansive about things that I found interesting and to rush through things that I was less interested in, like the Reformation, for example, appears in about five lines in this book, only because I'm not terribly interested by it. While, you know, the career of Muhammad, you know, takes up several chapters and his family, many chapters. So it all depends what you're fascinated by. But really, it's just a matter of just massive, massive obsessional reading and constantly trying to find um, really what, what really happened, rather than just repeating endlessly the same old um, the same old approach, um, conventional wisdoms that are repeated over and over again everywhere. And just to try and read the stuff, reread the much original material you can and try and work out what really happened. And if necessary, retell it in a way that's 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 more accurate. So would you read a book on, I don't know, Carthage or, or, or read books on Carthage and then read something on, on Cleopatra and then get right up to the present day and then start the writing of your book? Yeah, that, that's you... what I did. That's what I did. Yeah, I read I read the whole book. I did the reading for the whole book. And all the books are here on my floor of my office. I don't know if you can sit, you know, this is, this is a, I don't know if you can see anything yeah. back there, but they're all around there. Still, they're still lying on my floor because I haven't ever put them away yet. But um, I read everything. But of course, new books kept coming out and new essays in academic journals. And the great thing is just to try and get this book as up to date as possible with new finds. There are fascinating, there's constantly new fascinating, you know, um, scientific and brilliant academic work, you know, work coming out and just try and include it and encompass it in the book. It never ends, but I'm just doing the, as I said, I'm just doing the changes for the paperback. And uh, but when they go off, that's it. And I've got to move on and start my life again. So what brought you to being a historian? You, you educated, I think, at Harrow, then at Cambridge, at Keys College, next door to my old college, Clare College. 
But you didn't go straight into history, did you? Did you, you worked in finance, I think, and then you, you became a journalist and you were a, a war correspondent. Did, did you come to history? Did history come to you? How did it work? I mean, I was very attracted by um, politics at one point. I was very fascinated by finance as well. And I wanted to, I wanted to make a lot of money and then become a writer. Um, but that didn't quite happen the way I planned it, of course. Um, but also, I was really interested in working in finance for a while because I wanted to know how the world really worked. And I think a lot of people, um, especially members of the media, mediocracy, as I call it, you know, the sort of the sort of mainly Oxbridge people that control the British media and politics now um, on left and right, as much on left as on right, in fact. Um, and um, a, a very interconnected sort of elite group, if you like. And. I wanted, just wanted to see how stuff really worked um, and work in offices and see and work in other countries and so on, so which I did. And so that was that was part of it. And also my family came from banking and I thought I might be good at it. As it happened, I was catastrophic at it. Um, but um, it, was, it was a good thing to have done. And then, you know, I'd always been obsessed with Russia. I'd always wanted to write about Stalin, about, write about Russia. And then the Soviet Union started to fall apart. And I just thought I have to be there. So I went as a sort of war correspondent. Uh, I say sort of because I was freelance. I was, I was writing, writing for lots of different people. I was writing for The Spectator and The New Republic, The New York Times and The Times and so on. And I went, um, I went to all those. I, I, was, I was covering all the wars in the ex-Soviet Union, many of them. And there's no greater training for a historian to, than to see a great empire fall. So I was very lucky to see all that happen in person over five years. And then I had a few kind of really scary moments where I thought I might be kind of killed on these in these situations. And I must say, I sort of just thought, like, I just don't want to die yet doing so, you know, writing an article for the you know Telegraph for 300 pounds, you know. And so I started to write um, my biography, my biography of the partnership of Catherine the Great and Prince Potemkin. It's, it is an a, amazing story. And I, I'm fascinated by the idea that by witnessing the fall of an empire, that helps you as a historian. But also, I wonder whether by writing as a journalist, where you have to be immediate in your communicating in a very immediate way, whether that helped you with your style as a historian, that you were able to communicate to us in, in quite a direct fashion, perhaps. Yeah, I think it's very good training. Because a lot of these books are sort of you have to reduce massive amounts of material down to something quite sharp. So it's a really good training. Um, not that I was ever trained, of course, in anything really. But but it was yeah, you're right. It's a very good training for writing. I think it's a very good training for writing fiction and nonfiction actually. But and you've written fiction yourself, of course. And I've written fiction. I've written fiction. But the great fun thing about um, writing books is, you know, there's no intermediary. I mean, book writing books along with sort of painting, I think. Are the only are the only art where you're sort of in complete control, right? You know, complete control of what comes out at the end, and without any intermediaries at all. And um, and you can have a sense of humour. I think a sense of humour is also important, and that isn't really essential in journalism, but it's certainly essential in writing history. I think. Could you just explain to us where your family comes from? Because when I think of you and your your name, which is a wonderful name to my ear. I kind of think of you not just as a historian, but somebody who's part of history. And of course, we're all part of history. But with you, I feel this sense of, of someone who is part of the picture writing about it. 
and, and that may that, that that may just be the, the allure of the name but you come from an established and you know impressive family in certain ways and I, I wonder whether you could just tell us a bit about your family to those who don't know about it sure I mean I one of the things I say in this book is that we're all members of dynasties and as you say all families have amazing histories and so when people say oh it's a very historical village or a very historical family actually all families and all places are of course but I mean my family was a sort of had a sort of had a had a walk-on part um, at various moments in history. And um, that hence in world in my world history book, I've got them as in sort of sort of footnotes where they apply. But basically, mine is a is a Sephardic Jewish family from originally, as far as we know, from Spain and Portugal. And they were expelled from Spain effectively twice, once from Portugal. And in the second time they were expelled from Spain, most of them. Um, we believe were burned at the stake in Mexico City. And one boy left, went to Italy, and went to Livorno, which where, where Jews were, um, were were allowed to live with relative freedom. And then he, he, he took the name Montefiore. And that was in the that was at the beginning of the, the 17th century, beginning of the 16th century. And from then on we have a record of the family. And in, in the 19th century, in the 19th century, the family moved to um, to London, and one of the family, Moses Montefiore, um, became brother-in-law of another of an uh, uh, of another banker, who who became the founder of N.M. Rothschild, and they married sisters, and the two families were intermarried, and so um, they became they became very wealthy, and they became part of of a, a sort of upper class British society while never really belonging because they were Jewish and always remained practicing Jews throughout the, the 19th century. And so it was an interesting history. Um, Montefiore um, really gave much of his life to traveling the world, helping Jews who were being persecuted. And because he was connected to the British establishment at the, the height of British power, everyone listened to him. And when he went to Russia, for example, you know, he saw the Tsar. And when he went to Morocco, he saw the Sultan. And when he went to Egypt, he saw Mehmet Ali, who ruled Egypt, and so on. So he was a very interesting character, quite a brave character. And he also um, he also went to Jerusalem six times, and was really a kind of pre-Zionist before Zionism was invented, and believed that that the Jews would one day return to Jerusalem. Um, he was an interesting character. His nephew was called Joseph Seabag and came from Morocco. So then we have a Moroccan part of the family. And when Montefiore died at the age of 100 or 101, um, he, his heir was Joseph Seabag. And so Joseph Seabag took the name Montefiore, and hence we are called Seabag Montefiore. How big a part of your life and your identity is being Jewish, Simon? Quite a large part. I mean, I, I am I'm very interested in Jewish history. I'm very proud of being Jewish. Um, I've always... I've always been, um, I've always studied it and I've always enjoyed the culture. I'm not a terribly religious person and, and nor am I a great sort of, I would never really want to write a book about the family or something. I'm much more interested in other families. Um, I think that would be, that would, I think that would be quite a boring thing to do. But the interesting thing about Montefiore in the 19th century is that he kind of, he's a bit of a zealot character. He kind of pops up everywhere. And, um, so he's always worth a footnote. He's in he's in the Jerusalem book. He's in the Romanovs book. He's in the World book, and um, he's a, you know he was an interesting character, brave character. 
he was very good at handling anti-Semites. When he went to a dinner with a member of the royal family, uh, and he was the only Jew at the dinner, of course, and somebody, some lord said to him, you know, I've just been in Japan. And the great thing about Japan is, Montefiore, that they have no Jews and no pigs in that country. And there was a long silence and everyone looked at Montefiore. And Montefiore said, well, then you and I should visit Japan so they'll have one of each. Extraordinary. You mentioned the royal family. I mean, I've read, and this may be complete myth, that you are actually friends with the king. I am friends with the king. I am friends with the king. So you are right at the heart of the British establishment at the same time as being Jewish. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's quite true. I think I always feel that as a Jewish person in England, you're always a, you're always an outsider. But by through a sort of series of coincidences, I've got I, I got to know I got to know the Prince of Wales, who's now who's now Charles III. And um, talking about history and other stuff, we just, you know, we became friendly. And um, and he's really, a, you know, he's really an exceptional character. You know, he was the he was really the first kind of public person to warn about climate change, for example. You know, as as as, Pre as President Biden when it said to him when he saw him at the climate um, the climate conference, he said, you know, you started this, and that is sort of true. And in all sorts of ways, he's, he's a, really a kind of unique figure um, in the history of the royal family. I think he's really the most. I think he's really the most sort of influential and creative member of the royal family since Prince Albert, probably. So I think he's, I think it's, yeah, I think we're quite lucky to have him. He's very experienced, very dutiful. And I think he sort of understands that in the royal family, the monarchy is a part of our unwritten constitution that is there to sort of, to really to sort of safeguard, you know, liberal, our liberal democracy in a way that sort of works in, a, in an idiosyncratic way. And there again, you, you're part of history in a way by being so close to the monarch who sort of inherits the responsibilities that have been passed down the ages that you chronicle, that you write history about. You, you, you know, you are part of the present incarnation of that history, which, which fascinates me. Well, it's interesting knowing it's interesting knowing really historical figures personally, of course. And in my and in my world history, I, I you know, I. I've known some of these characters, and I think you know we, we uh, you know I, I, you know I've 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 known Kissinger and Shimon Peres and Margaret Thatcher, you know King Juan Carlos, Boris Berezovsky, all sorts of interesting characters who I've kind of bumped into along the way, and and in the world history I use those conversations wherever I can, just because it's rather a wonderful thing to put in a conversation that you've had yourself with someone. I don't really write at all about the British royal family because. I'm really interested in power and you know I'm really a historian of power and so I write I write a lot more about you know Saddam Hussein and Stalin than I do um, about the British royal family but I think it is an interesting thing that these constitutional monarchies in northern Europe sort of work um, and though the countries that don't have them like like United States and like um, France for example you know, do have a problem with over mighty presidencies, and we're seeing that in, we're seeing that in, we've seen that we saw that with Donald Trump, and we also see it, you know, with 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 the protests against Macron in the streets of Paris. Now, you see what happens when you know when the head of state is mixed up with the more tawdry business of and the tawdry and transient business of of you know elected democratic politicians uh, who come and go, and that's why I think it works. Your wife is herself a best-selling author, Santa, Santa Montefiore. 
And I just want to know how that works in your household. You both have offices in the same household. Do you kind of help each other? Do you inspire each other? Do you sort of check each other's work? Do you, how do I, I can imagine it's an entirely non-competitive relationship and that you're very mutually supportive. Yeah, I know lots of people find this hard to believe and everyone's dying to find out that you know, we're we are constantly um, jealous of each other. But actually, surprisingly, I don't know why, but we've just never had that problem. And we really both have our own offices and um, we're always helping each other. And I must say, marrying Santa was like the best thing I ever did. I don't think I'd ever written anything um, or any of these books without her, because I, I think that um, she's she created a great atmosphere of calm and um, order, uh, which was completely absent from my life before. and. Um, but we really encourage each other and help each other a lot in quite a, in quite an enjoyable way. And um, we, we both work away on our own stuff. And then we meet at lunchtime and just sort of talk all, all for coffee um, in our local cafe. I think the great thing about being a writer is really about sitting in cafes doing nothing for a lot of, a lot of the time. Which leads me to my final question, and that is to ask you to give us a sense of what life is like being Simon Seabag Montefiore when you're not working and when you're not sitting in cafes with your wife. What sort of a lifestyle do you have? I mean, I came to the book launch, which was a, quite an ornate affair in a sort of, well, it was certainly in an ornate room in a London hotel. It was it's rather magnificent. And I just, do you, are you constantly at drinks parties? Are you constantly at exciting dinner parties? Are you on, on some sort of circuit? Or is the real Simon sort of hidden away watching Succession whenever he can? How does it work? I have just added Succession. To um to the world actually, where well, I've added the the Murdoch the, the Rupert Murdoch family, which I'd left out, um rashly. I mean, I do think Succession is just a brilliant. I mean, obviously it's written by people that love history. I mean, there's so many. I was just I'm just watching the latest, the last season, and there are so many references, just brilliant historical references, with that that are really showing off, um very very esoteric historical knowledge. You know. Um, like Tumble Down Dick, for example, or Nero and Sporus. So I do think it's, I think it's just brilliant, don't you? I, 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 I'm, I'm just started the fourth series, and it's w- watching Succession. I think I watched the, the first. We're on the fourth series, aren't we? So I think I watched yeah. the first three series before the pandemic, and it was the most glorious television. I mean, of, yeah. of, of, of course, draw, drawing a link between Succession and and, and Murdoch is. Perhaps we we don't know that it's deliberately, but we hope we it's don't. not, and we hope it's not based on on on, on Murdoch. It's not um, direct. It's not direct. It's not but, a direct um chronicle of them, but of course it's the the some linkage. But are you watching Succession or are you out and about? No, actually, I I mean I know that everyone would presume that someone like me is always constantly at drinks parties and um, but actually, as my children keep telling me. Um, you know, I'm really, I'm afraid the truth is that I'm a terrible hermit, or at least 70% hermit. And, um, and you know, you can only really write these books if you're, I mean, usually if you're, um, if you're on your own a lot. And, you know, um, the writing, the writing life is a sort of solitary life, really. And when I'm not writing books, I actually hate parties. I like going to, I like sitting in cafes, really. Um, reading papers, reading books, writing diaries, and um, ordering coffee, and uh, that's my kind of dream. That's my dream. But the other, the other dream, the other thing I love to do is to be away from England altogether and to travel to new places. And to, I love it when books come out in foreign countries. I always go, 
um, to launch them if I'm invited. And um, the more the more sort of distant and, and unlikely the place, the better. Uh, this is a cheat question because it it's question 21 or so, but it, it, it feeds off that. So we'll count it as a sub question and allow it, I think. And, and it's just, is the greatest pleasure for you the creating of the book? And by that, I include both the reading, the prep and, and the you know, research and the writing. Or, or is the greatest pleasure once it's all signed, sealed and delivered and you're in some beautiful town or beautiful country out, uh, away from here, selling it to the world and talking to people about it? I mean, writing the book for me, writing writing history books for me is 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 an agonizing um, toil, and it's really labor intensive. It's really it's very hard work. Um, for for me, the great joy is holding the book when it's when it exists, and I'm never having to write it again, and being able to talk about it in strange faraway towns um uh in, in when when the book is published in in a in a in a foreign language that for me is the great delight in life and it for me it's all about the work Simon Seabag Montefiore it was as expected a total pleasure to talk to you and to ask you my 20 questions thank you for answering them thanks for having me really nice to talk to you as always